calendars say that uh, a year runs from January to December. Uh, but in many ways, the new year actually begins in September and goes through the summer. That's when summer ends and we go back to school. That's the end of vacations and we return back to work, getting back to the realities that drive our lives. So what would be a good sermon text for this time of the year that looms large because it's kind of the end of this year and the beginning of a new one pretty quick. Um, I've chosen Psalm 1. So if you turn to Psalm 1. Ralph Davis uh, affirms my choice by discussing why Psalm 1 is Psalm 1, the first psalm. Why not Psalm 150, where we learn about worship? Why not Psalm 103, where God speaks of mercy? Why not Psalm 139, where we see God's majesty? Well, finally, Davis tells us why Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. And to quote him, he says, because it packs a matter of such supreme importance. Here are two ways, two humanities, two destinies are clearly spelled out. The psalm is saying to you, nothing is so crucial as you belonging to the congregation of the righteous. Jim Boyce summed it up as he preached on Psalm 1. He called, gave his sermon this title, The Fast Lane or the Right Path. Which? So listen as I read the text, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in, in, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let me suggest three things that uh, we learn in this little psalm, and we'll spend more time on the first one than the others, but uh, three, three points. The first is this. God wants your mind. God wants your mind. Now, we might prefer to say God wants your heart, and that's certainly true, but... In our culture, things of the heart seem to indicate our feelings, while things of the mind seem to indicate facts and truth. So God certainly wants your heart, but he's claiming your mind. You've often heard me speak about and pray for our kids who are off to college, like we have Mary and others today. Out to start on their own. If you're one of those, I have a special concern for you. For more than any of the rest of us, you are in a battle for your mind. Bright, young, impressionable minds begin to think independently. 
mom and dad are not there to correct everything. And so many voices seek to fill your minds with ideas, some of which are radically opposed to anything that you've ever believed. So what kind of thinking will you embrace? Who will win this battle for your mind? That's the issue at the heart of this psalm. The battle for our minds. It's a battle faced not only by college students who are on the main front of this, but it's a battle confronting every one of us. On the one hand, we're constantly getting counsel from the world in the form of advice and uh, ideas and philosophies. At the same time, God has given us his Torah, a word that actually primarily means his instruction. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the world's, the world's counsel or advice and God's Torah or instruction are two competing systems of thought. And that's the battle line drawn in these first verses. God wants your mind. So let's talk about the counsel, the advice of the wicked for a minute. The world's counsel is not all gathered up in a book that you can go check out of the library and see what they're trying to teach you. It would be nice if it was, but it's not. The counsel of the wicked is like the air that you breathe in our culture. It, 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 it comes in as well-meaning advice from your friends. It's woven skillfully into textbooks and into novels. It comes from the reporter's spin on the news as he reports it. It's beautifully communicated in the lyrics of popular songs. It's dramatized in lifelike images on a thousand movie screens. Oh, it would be so much easier if the counsel of the wicked were in a book that we could read and, and confront it. But it's not. Notice also that the counsel of the wicked is a slippery slope. Here the Lord vividly but poetically describes this counsel of the, of the wicked. It seeks, seeks to move us from thinking to behaving to belonging. It quickly makes us more comfortable in our lives from walking to standing to sitting. It quickly permeates our lives. We accept worldly advice and we walk in the counsel of the wicked and we become party to its ways and so we stand around and uh, give and take with the sinners a bit and when we adopt a cynical attitude we sit down and push back and we're one of the cynics. Oh, but we don't have to talk about this hypothetically. We all know people that grew up in the faith and yet as they went out in adulthood whether it was school or job or wherever it was they began to drift. They listened to other voices. They began to enjoy the party and graduated as godless cynics. It's not just in university students that face this. We listen to someone's advice. That's a counsel from somewhere. We fill our minds with ideas. What ideas do we fill our minds with? We, we all organize our thinking into some kind of philosophy of life, whether we call it that or not. 
whose philosophy of life do we adopt? This morning I tell you, God wants your mind. So God has provided his own counsel. That is his holy word. Here it's called God's law, the Torah. But as I said, the Torah primarily means instruction, not commandments. And unlike the counsel of the wicked, God ha has gathered his instruction in one book, actually in 66 books put together as one, we call it the Bible. Unfortunately, we don't necessarily pay attention to it. But ultimately, this is God's book about himself. He is the wonderful counselor. Not the pagan counsel, but the wonderful counselor. And in this book, God reveals the priceless value of his revelation. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. His word is seed which grows to produce abundant fruit in this season. His word is a hammer that breaks stony hearts. His word is a double-edged sword which can even dissect the motives and intentions. It, it is sweeter than honey. It is more priceless than gold. It never fails and it will never pass away. And so in verse 2, God calls us to delight in his instruction and to meditate on it day and night. Meditate. That's like a cow chewing the cud. It takes in some food and it chews and chews and chews and chews to digest it. So one writer notes that whatever shapes your thinking, then will shape your life. Just as the proverb says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You see, this is a battle for your mind. What will you delight in? What will you meditate on? What will you fill all the spaces in your day with? What can you hardly wait to think about again? God wants that to be his word. He wants your mind. God wants the attention, the activity, and the allegiance of your mind. Dear people, this is not magic. It involves choices that we make, priorities that we set. Every day, you either pick up God's word and read it or you don't. And when you hear of a Bible study available to you, you either show up and fill your mind with God's word or you don't. And when you drive down the road, you either find a way to fill your mind with God's truth as you drive or you fill it with something else. And when you pick up books and magazines to read, you either fight to nurture your Christian perspective or you just cave in and take whatever you hear. Every day in a dozen different ways, you either join the battle to devote your mind to the Lord and bring every thought captive to him or you cave in and accept the advice, the counsel of this confused, hopeless world. But God's will in this matter is not obscure. God claims your mind. Which brings us to our second point. God blesses those who delight in him. God blesses those who delight in him. Now I want to be careful here how we think about this. In a behavioristic world as we live in, we learn to do things in order to get rewards. 
It starts when you're a little tyke and you get some M&Ms for doing what you're supposed to do. But God does not play that game. He expects our obedience because he is the Lord, not because he's going to pay. So what do I do? So what do I not want you to hear? Is some, what I want to you not, hear, not, hear, not hear you say is, if you will do what God says, he will reward you with treats. That's not so simple. At the same time, ideas and actions have consequences. God made it that way. If you jump off a building, you will fall to the ground. That's not your reward or your punishment. That's just how it is. If you plant corn in the spring, when the fall comes, you'll be harvesting corn, not beans. That's just how it is. It's in that vein of thought that this text says, God blesses those who delight in him. It's just how it works. Actions yield consequences. We actually see three different references to the consequences here. Three kinds of blessing. The first is a blessing of happiness. Verse 1 says, blessed is the man. There's actually a different Hebrew word that means blessed. This word primarily means happy. It's what the Queen of Sheba said when she came to visit King Solomon. She said, how happy your men must be, how happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. The queen of Sheba never dreamed that there could be such a wonderful place as, as a land of happy people living under God's command and under God's king. And folks, it's still true how happy the people who do not walk in the darkness the counsel of the wicked, but delight in and live according with God's word. Blessing of happiness. That's the first blessing. The second one, there's a blessing of fruitfulness. We see that promise in verse 3. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields fruit in the season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Here the poet uses this wonderful image of a fruitful tree. We've all been reminded in recent days of how dry it can get in the summer and how the grass turns brown and the flowers wilt and the leaves on the fruit trees begin to curl and it looks pretty grim. But I've noticed if I look down by the creek by my house, it's quite green down there. Whether it's something you want to grow or not, it's growing. So is the person whose roots are sunk deep into God's word, drawing nourishment that nobody can give. In good times and bad, that person will be unwithered and fruitful. Now, this does not mean that God's people never have problems. It only means that God's word, God's word is a source of stability and fruitfulness, even in the midst of hardship. We see examples of, the, examples of this in every human tragedy. They're, they're in the midst of suffering. We always find some who clearly know the Lord. Some who even in the face of their own need seek to serve others. Some who face the hardship and hopelessness with songs of praise. Those people bear testimony to this truth. 
God blesses those who delight in him. They're like sturdy, well-watered, fruitful trees, even in the worst of the drought. There's a third blessing here. That's the blessing of eternal life. We hear this third promise of blessing in verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The blessing in view here is really nothing short of eternal life. It's in contrast to the condemnation of the wicked. And what is a blessing from God? What a blessing from God this is. Forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ who died to pay for our sin. Raised with him to new life. And on judgment day acceptable to God because we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. But how... Do you come to know that blessed salvation? You won't read it in the newspaper. You won't hear about it watching a football game. You won't discover it out hiking Mount Baker. You won't see it in any Oscar winning music. No pop singer is going to inform you about it. There's only one way that anyone will ever come to know God's blessedness. By giving attention to God's instruction, God's word. For God blesses those who delight to know him. One more truth before we close. The wicked will come to nothing. The wicked will come to nothing. You know, in all my life, I have to admit, I have met very few people who even claimed to hate God and care nothing about what God might say. The truth is, most of us have wonderful intentions. But the power of sin is seen in the fact that we never get around to acting on our good intentions. Why not? We don't even follow the light we have. Well, one reason is the world's so enticing. People are having fun and they're making money and being successful and living in the fast lane. But meditating on God's word and walk, walking in his ways, well, that's just so, so boring. And so God, who knows us better than we know ourselves, as he calls us to the discipline of delighting in his law, and promises us his blessedness. He also pulls back the blinds a little bit. So that we might see where that other lifestyle is headed. The wicked will come to nothing. Specifically in verse 4 God refers to the wicked as chaff. Now chaff appears to be part of the wheat. For a long time. In fact, it's called wheat and it's treated like wheat. But then the threshing starts. And I don't mean the big combines that roll through the plains. I mean the old fashioned threshing floor where the grain is crushed by dragging threshing sledges over it to break up his shell. And then it's tossed up into the breeze and the, the wheat comes down and the chaff just, it's gone. It's Nothing. The wicked are like the chaff. They amount to nothing. Well, right now it doesn't seem like that, does it? 
Psalm 73 is vivid in its description of the way things look today. Let me read some of it. The wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people, their people turn to them and drink up waters of abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in health and wealth. But God says, they're only chaff. The wicked come to nothing. Whoosh. Nothing. Nothing. And so in verse 5, their final judgment is described in two ways. The wicked will not stand. They will experience a complete loss of support. Everything the wicked put their hope in will fall apart. Financial security, power, human governments, philosophical systems, popular acclaim, it will all come to nothing. God guarantees it. And then the wicked will also be cut off from the assembly of the righteous. Right now, many of the wicked appear to be part of God's people. And everyone's fooled. But God knows his own. And on judgment day, he will separate the true from the false. And even Christian friends will not be able to help. For on that day, the truth will come to light and the wicked will come to nothing. Every time we encounter great tragedy, there's always the outcry. Why didn't anyone see this coming and warn us? But in almost every case, someone did see it coming and sounded the alarm, but people were not listening. They were just unprepared then. Such tragedies should teach us to pay attention to this psalm, which outlines what really matters and where our choices will take us. Here we see clearly the importance of what goes on inside of us. First of all, God wants your mind. And then everything else flows from that. God blesses those who delight in him. They're the truly happy ones. Their, their lives prove to be fruitful. They inherit eternal life. But finally, the wicked will come to nothing. In spite of how things look today. In spite of the apparent success and wealth of the godless. In spite of the dazzling things of this world which demand their atten our attention. In spite of the fact that God's people are regularly painted as losers on the day he forever separates the two groups, the two competing ways of life, the wicked will come to nothing. So blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Folks, may I suggest that only Christ Jesus actually fits the description of Psalm 1. You will never delight in the law of God well enough to stand before God on your own merits. Your only hope is to trust in Jesus, who alone is acceptable to the Father, and who, he, 
and who has paid for our sin. And then he will transform you, conform you to himself through the renewing of your mind. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we all know better than we do. We know a lot of things. We've heard a lot of stuff. And yet we get carried away by the things of the world so easily. And the things around us look so impressive and hold out such great hope for us. But it's all a facade, Lord. So help us, Lord, to understand what you said. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Keep us, guide us, cause our life to be what you want it to be, not something that's going to become nothing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.